One of the most famous websites in all of Christianity is a website called BibleGateway.com. You probably have accessed it at some point if you've looked up a verse on the internet. And Bible Gateway hits, receives billions of hits every year of people going to it to look up verses and chapters and stories in the Bible. At the end of every year, they publish their rankings of the most searched verses in all of BibleGateway.com. And the champion, four years running, is John 3.16. It is not a controversial statement for me to say that I believe that this is the most well-known and oft-memorized verse in all of Scripture for Christians today. And yet, when we look at this verse and what the Bible represents, yes, God so loved the world as to give the only begotten one that whoever believes may not die but have eternal life, Christians view it as kind of a thesis statement for what Christianity is. But what Christians often don't pay attention to is how this verse is heard by people who live outside of Christianity. Because if you look closely at this, if you just go around and quote this verse to people who feel like they aren't part of the Christian tradition, it becomes a very different meaning very quickly. You see, without context, John 3.16 is a threat. Because while it says those who believe may not die, it directly implies that those who doubt will die. And what's interesting to me about this is that when you put it in its context, John 3.16 is something very different than a threat, and very few Christians understand or even know the context of when Jesus said these words. So with that in mind, we're going to give you some context for John 3.16, and the best place to begin for that is by opening John chapter 3 and reading verse 1. A certain Pharisee named Nicodemus a member of the Sanhedrin came to Jesus at night. Now, the Sanhedrin is a big deal. There are only 70 of the most religiously elite people in all of Jesus' day who are religious that get to be part of the Sanhedrin. This is not some small deal showing up to talk to Jesus. This is one of the bigwigs. We would equate this today to someone being like a cardinal speaking to Jesus. Now, what's interesting about Christians today is we love to tell people about the reliable truth of Scripture. And because of that, a lot of Christians view the Bible as something of like a newspaper, and a newspaper that's been researched and written by journalists. And what do journalists do really well? Well, journalists, they go and they research, they interview, they verify sources, they write, then they go through proofreads, then they send it to an editor, the editor sends it back, they change it, they send it to an editor, the editor sends it back, and then they submit at the deadline, right? And so if a journalist was covering this story, they would probably go and research, did we have, do we have video footage of Jesus and Nicodemus meeting? What was the location? They would go and interview Jesus and Nicodemus and see if anyone else overheard this conversation. They would verify the sources and they would be held accountable by an editorial review board. My friends, John wrote this a long time ago and he did one of these seven steps. He wrote it. <laughs> Not only that, but John wrote it seven decades after the life of Jesus. Imagine trying to tell a story that is 70 years old. That's what John is doing. There's no one to verify. There's no one to interview. Like, John is just like, hmm, here's what I remember about the event that I was not at. <laughs> and for that reason, we've got to dismiss the idea that John is a journalist and view John as something else. 
I prefer to view John as an artist. John's gospel leans more into metaphor and artistry than any of the other gospels in the Bible. For that reason, I think of John like an excellent artist named Henry Osawa Tanner. And Henry Tanner was a guy who was just, uh, he was born in 1859 in Pittsburgh, and he was the first African-American artist to receive international acclaim. Now, as you can imagine, Henry Tanner was trying to realize, or he started to realize that he had a passion for painting, a passion for artistry, and so he applied to art schools and internships, and every one of those doors instantly slammed in his face because of the color of his skin. He said, I don't have any opportunities here in America. I'm going to go instead to Paris. And in 1891, he immigrated to Paris and enrolled in several different programs and academies and began to hone his craft. Now, Henry Tanner is very good at what he does, and he loves to paint religious scenes in all of his, all of his paintings. Here's one that I particularly like. It's the Annunciation when the angel tells Mary that she will be bearing the Christ child. Here's one where Jesus' family is escaping to Egypt. That color would later be known as Tanner Blue, and it became his signature in his paintings. And then here is a portrait of Christ in the middle of his career. So when we think of John, we have to think of him closer to Henry Tanner than we do to a journalist. And what's really interesting is Henry Tanner, just like John, was looking back through history and trying to understand this story of Jesus meeting Nicodemus. And for that reason, in 1899, he painted a picture of Jesus meeting Nicodemus under the cover of darkness. But as his life and his career developed, he said, you know what, I like this painting, but I think I can do it better. And so 25 years after that painting, he did a study to see if he wanted to do another painting. And then two years after the study, he repainted the same scene with a few noticeable differences. Namely, Nicodemus is sitting much lower than Jesus. That's intentional. Because when you think about what John is doing, he is telling a story about a big wig religious official speaking to the Son of God. And the Son of God is confronting the religious person and specifically the religion inside the religious person. So think of John 3 as an artistic depiction of God and religion discussing theology under the stars. And so when we do an alternative telling like we did just a few moments ago, I try to take this big, bulky theological conversation and put it in terms that we talk about today in a way that makes sense where God would be confronting religion. Now, here's the thing about this story. If you are religious, then you are Nicodemus in this story. I know. I like stories where I'm Jesus better too. <laughs> this is not one of those stories. Imagine this being Jesus speaking to you about the value of religion in your life, and you realize that this story starts to take on a completely different character. When Christians take John 3.16 and go tell the rest of the world, hey, let me tell you what Jesus tells you, Jesus would say, no, 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 I was telling you that, you religious people. The religious people are the recipients of John 3.16. This was not an outer-facing conversation. Now, Whenever you hear John 3.16, images like this should come to mind. You should always place these words in the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus under the cover of darkness. And when you look at this, you should say, okay, what's the larger conversation about? What is the theological conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus are having? And to answer that question, you look at the central illustration that Jesus highlights and points to, and you realize it becomes very clear 
what Jesus is trying to confront Nicodemus about. He goes back to a random story that is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and he says, hey, Nicodemus, you remember that story where the Israelites were in the wilderness and they got bit by serpents? What did Moses do? And Nicodemus says, yeah, he built a, a bronze serpent, placed it on a stick, and then walked through the camp, and whoever looked at that serpent was instantly healed. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jesus would say. Now, what he doesn't do, which I believe is the next step in the conversation, is he implies, remember that other story where, where Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God? What was the second commandment there? Oh, right, do not make false idols. Well, what exactly is this? That's literally an idol. And yet God is like, hey, let's heal people through an idol. That's not consistent at all. Jesus then says, in the same way this serpent was lifted up, so shall I be lifted up later. He was speaking about his own crucifixion. Now, this may seem like a big deal to you or a small deal to you, but if you know the scriptures, this is a big deal. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses is giving a sermon on the side of a mountain, and he says, anyone who dies being nailed to a tree is cursed by God. So what do these four stories represent? Theological paradoxes. And man, do I love theological paradoxes, right? Because you have these rules set up in these two stories, and those rules being broken by who? Not humanity, God. And this reveals one of my favorite paradoxes that is essential to Christianity. God is where God should not be. Amen. Wherever you think God is not, go there, because God will be there. Amen. Whenever you hear, oh, God couldn't be there, go there, because God is guaranteed to be there. So what is this whole theological conversation about? Well, Nicodemus, as a religious person, goes before Jesus and, Jesus, and Nicodemus wants to tell Jesus about how great his religious practice is. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your religion is actually part of the problem. You see, Nicodemus' religion is restricting his understanding of God. And Jesus wants him to see how God is much bigger than his religion. Now, let's be very careful here, because there's a lot of history of anti-Semitism within Christianity that we have to be aware of. This is not unique to Judaism. In fact, this restriction happens to every religious person at some point. At some point, you will run into the limits of what your religion practices, and you have to recognize that God is bigger than your religion, whatever your religion may be. Leaning into metaphors, because that seems to be the theme of this morning, I want you to think of religion like a telescope, right? Here we are under a vast blanket of sky or stars, and it is gorgeous. And if you drive a little ways away from here, you can be swept up in wonder and overwhelmed by the number of stars. You can look at them, and you can try to name them all, and it's nearly impossible. But if you bring a telescope with you, you can look at these stars or planets one celestial body at a time. And for a telescope that you can buy over the counter, you can look through it and see some of the magnificence of the cosmos, like Jupiter, like this. You can actually see the color and the texture, and you can look with it through your eyes, through this lens, and realize that Jupiter is right there in the colors everybody told you it actually was. This telescope right here is a representation of religion. And the stars and the sky and the cosmos is the representation of God. 
The telescope helps us to narrow our focus so we can grasp something finite about the infinite God. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that no matter how breathtaking it is to see God through this telescope, it's not the whole story. It's not even close. I mean, Jupiter is just one of those dots up there in the sky, isn't it? And it doesn't just end with like religion in general, but it also works with the smaller pieces of religion. For instance, I have grown up in the church and I have frequently heard a metaphor about God. I have been told over and over again that God is my shepherd. I've been told that up, down, left, right, all the time. God is our great shepherd. Well, does this mean that God has cosmic sheep floating through the universe? No, of course not. This is a metaphor. It's a metaphor and it's a telescope that helps us to understand God. Because while God is so much more than a shepherd, it narrows our focus and helps us to see just a piece of God in a way that we couldn't see before. Now, what's really fascinating about shepherd is that this is a really popular one within Christianity because the Bible frequently refers to God as a shepherd. Why? Because the Bible was written by shepherds. So the shepherds were like, you want to understand God? It's kind of like us. That's how things get done in theology, right? Now, let's think about how this different this might be if we were writing the Bible today here in, in Redlands. What is it that we would compare God to? Or what is the metaphor we'd use for God? Well, here in Redlands, what are we really good at? Maps. God is my map maker is what we'd say, right? Like we're really good at maps here in Redlands. And we would say, oh, God is the great map maker. God guides us when we are lost. God knows how to make the right details pop. Every one of those things. That's what we would compare God to today if we were writing the Bible in Redlands. If you go just a few miles away from here to the city of Loma Linda, how would we compare God to? What is the telescope we would use? God is my healer. God is the healer. God takes care of us. God sits beside our bed and waits on us. God wants us to get well. So you can see how these metaphors are telescopes that help us see different pieces of God, and they are very much based on our own experience. Now, what most Christians don't understand is that these metaphors are really valuable because the only way we can really talk about God is with metaphors. It's all religious language is metaphors at some point because we say, you want to know what God's like? It's kind of like this. Or God is my shepherd, God guides me, God is my map maker. These are all metaphors, and in other words, they are all like telescopes. Every person then is tempted to turn their metaphors that they prefer into idols. So for instance, if you say, you know what, I like God as my shepherd, it's in the Bible, it's the best metaphor there is for God. And you say, hey, well, why don't you come look at God through my telescope? And they say, nope, that's a heretical telescope, I'm not going to do it. At that point, this metaphor has turned into an idol. And an idol is a reduction of the infinite God to a finite container. There's nothing wrong with doing it until you say, no, this actually is God. God is literally a shepherd. At which point we'd say, no, he was a carpenter. So why don't we pick carpenter for that, right? (laughs) Idols are a reduction to the infinite God to a finite container and saying that it's better than everything else. Now, about 100 years ago, 
there was this person, this pastor who lived in upstate New York, who went for a walk and he was just moved by how beautiful everything was around him. The rocks, the trees, the water, the sky. It was all so breathtaking that he went home and he wrote a poem called This Is My Father's World. Now, it was not published until after his death. And then about a decade after he died and they published it, they turn it into a song, and I will tell you, it is my favorite hymn in Christianity. Now, fast forward about 100 years to 2017, and Maddie Cattenhorn and I were leading worship one day. We kept trying to get a band together, and we couldn't do it. So we said, you know what? Let's just rewrite old hymns to talk about what we're going through today. So we rewrote four hymns, and the last of which was, this is my mother's world. And we changed the masculine pronouns to the feminine pronouns. Now, you're not going to believe this, but some people really told us what they thought about this. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, it was split about 50-50, right? And as this day has unfolded since 2017, we have sung this song with great regularity, and we have constantly shunned This Is My Father's World until I believe this is the first time we have sung This Is My Father's World till 2017. Now... Why do we so frequently sing This Is My Mother's World and so infrequently sing This Is My Father's World here at Paradox? I am so glad you asked. <laughs> the reason is because we want to rid ourselves of the limitations of masculine pronouns for God. Amen. They're not bad, they're not sinful, but they are limited, and Christians have really gotten those two confused, haven't they? If you're having a hard time hearing this, let me say it this way. If you can only think of God as male, then your religion is restricting your understanding of God. Until you can see that God is both male and female and also non-binary and start to use those interchangeable pronouns as telescopes that help us understand just the peace of God, then you can start to see the majesty of a God who is bigger than your own containers, your own pronouns, your own telescope. So when we look at this story of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, if you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm having a hard time, like my religion is restricting my understanding of God, this story is written just for you. This is the story about Jesus saying, I understand you're having a hard time, Nicodemus, but you have to understand God is so much bigger than what you see through your own religious telescope. There's a whole sky out there with suns and moons and stars, and it's all a symphony. Stop just looking through your own telescope. Now, the way this story unfolds is Nicodemus opens the conversation by saying to Jesus, I have good news, Jesus. We believe. We're believers. We've seen the miracles you have done, Jesus, and it's moving, and we know. We know you're the Son of God. And we assume Jesus will say, well done, Nicodemus. You have solved the puzzle you're going to make it to the bonus level. <laughs> but Jesus says something else entirely. He says, but have you been reborn? Now, it's here that Nicodemus says, what do you mean reborn? Do you want to crawl back in my mother's womb? Which is hilarious to think about and disturbing to depict as South Park did not too long ago. <laughs> you cannot unsee that is all I will say about that. But look at what's going on with this story. Nicodemus, the religious person, I have the best beliefs, Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, it doesn't really matter. Have you been reborn, though? Because that's what, that's what God cares about. 
It doesn't really matter to Jesus what Nicodemus believes. And if you're Nicodemus in this story, I know this is borderline heresy. Jesus doesn't really care what you believe. Jesus instead wants to talk about Nicodemus' rebirth. And Jesus is much more concerned with your rebirth than with what you believe. Now, your belief can help you get to rebirth, right? But it's not the end goal. And so when we think about this story where Jesus is saying, but have you been reborn? It's like Nicodemus went to Jesus and said, I got a telescope. I looked through it. I saw Jupiter. It was magnificent, Jesus. I did the task. And Jesus says, no, no, Nicodemus, tell me about your life after you saw Jupiter through the telescope. Because that's what I want to know. Imagine looking at Jupiter, Nicodemus, and then nothing changes. The telescope then is a waste. It's a waste of time. Nicodemus, Jesus says, God doesn't care about your telescope. God cares about how much you love the stars you look at and also how much you love your fellow astronomers. Now, at this point, you may feel like I'm stretching the metaphor to its limits, to which I would say I probably am. But let's talk practical, shall we? Imagine that you were the best prayer on the planet and you were humble. <laughs> Let's imagine that you prayed nine times a day. And when you prayed, like poetry just flowed out of your mouth, right? Like people would start weeping when they heard you pray. They would start dancing. They would start saying hallelujah. Like you were just the cat's pajamas when it comes to prayer, right? Imagine that, and you did this not for one year, not for two years. You pray nine times a day, beautiful prayers for seven decades. And you get to the end of your life, and you look back at the first time you prayed, and you think to yourself, man, I'm really good at praying, but I'm the same person as I was back then. I think Jesus would say, you have wasted your time with prayer at that point. Think about scripture. Imagine you can memorize all of scripture, every book. Not only that, but you could memorize all the versions, and it was like a party trick. You would go somewhere, they would say like, what does 1 Corinthians 4.12 say in the New Revised Standard Version? And you could just spew it out, and people would be like, hallelujah! <laughs> and you studied the Bible, you understood themes, context, you understood maps, you got it all in your brain. And you get to the end of your life, 70 years later, you look back and you say, kind of this the same person as when I started this Bible study, I think Jesus would say, you wasted your time. Imagine you go to church every week, but you're the same person after going there for seven decades. Jesus would say, church is nice, it's fun, but you've wasted your time because church attendance isn't the goal. Let's ramp this up, shall we? Imagine Jesus God does this amazing miracle right in front of your eyes. God splits the heavens open and in her magnificent voice says, you are my child, you are loved. Go into the world and tell them that you have seen me. I believe that if we told Jesus this, Jesus would say, um, that's great. What you believe about that miracle and whether it happened or not doesn't really matter. The work of God, though, is found in the life lived after that miracle. When God opened those heavens, did you go and help others who were in need? Were you a kinder person? Did you seek more forgiveness? Were you quicker to say, I'm sorry? That's the rebirth I'm interested in, Jesus says, to our religious selves, which are represented 
in the life of Nicodemus in this story. God isn't interested in your belief, my friends. God is interested in your transformation. That's what this story is about. And don't say John 3.16 ever again without forgetting the larger <laughs> theological conversation because it's not like Jesus takes a left turn and says, but make sure you're on the right team religiously so you can go to the next level. No, no, no. This is the forefront that all precedes what happens in John 3.16 where we read, yes, God so loved the world as to give the only begotten one that whoever believes may not die but have eternal life. Now, I'm going to tell you how I interpret this verse. You may interpret it differently. We can still be friends. We can still break bread and still be part of the whole same religion, right? In order for this to fit with all that came before, the way I see it is eternal life is more about a quality of life and less about a longevity of life. And for me, beliefs, well, what is belief more than anything? It's the ability to trust and so what I read it as is anyone who trusts that God so loved this world that God gave up everything in love for it, if I trust it, I will find a life worth living. Amen. And I will tell you, this has been very helpful to me in the way that I view the world, because if we trust that God loves the world so much that God will give up everything, then it changes what happens when we follow God, right? Amen. All of a sudden, when we follow God, we're going to follow God not away from the world, but into the heart of the world. We're going to love the world as much as God can because that's where God is leaving us. And what I have found to be true in my own life is that when we love the world, we simultaneously love God. There is no difference. Anytime you live in love, you are living in the presence of God. You may ask where I got this crazy idea from. 1 John chapter 4. John says, anyone who lives in love lives in the presence of God. I know, I've been accused of being a biblical literist all the time, right? <laughs> but it's what I found to be true. Now, you may be looking at this world and saying, like, this world? This world's got problems, Craig. How is it that you can love this world with all the suffering, all the anger, all the evil, all the terrible things that are happening? To which I would say, now that's a question that I love to talk about with other people. I think one of the most spiritual questions we can ask ourselves as Christian is not how do you love God, but how do you love this world here, now? And I will tell you there's days that I don't feel like I love the world. So if you feel discouraged or this is the opposite of who you are, I have those days too. And whenever I'm struggling with trying to figure out how to love the world, I try to go back to basics, like the basic basics, right? I sit down and I think to myself, well, what do I actually love on this planet that will probably never change? I love the mountains. I really do. Anytime I'm in the mountains, I'm happy. Anytime I get near the crest of a summit, I feel my heart start to race in love, appreciation, and reverence. And I often think about the stories the mountains have seen over their long existence that I can barely wrap my head around. I will always love going to the mountains. I also love the beach. Not just any beach, though, a beach from Maui. Like, oh, you dip your toes into that sand and you feel it uh, filter through your toes. I could stay there forever on a beach in Maui. I also love a desert, not just any desert, but the desert in carefree Arizona. Now, I love it in January and February, 
which is really a healthy spiritual exercise for me because it reminds me that I have to be thankful for the entire desert and not just parts of it because it's only because it's hot during the summer that I can enjoy it when it cools down. And so I love going to the desert on a perfect, cool day. Beyond locations, though, there are so many other things I love. I love lizards in the wild. So much so that I will not hold them because I'm terrified. But when somebody else picks them up, I love it. I will always get as close as I can to the lizard, assuming that they will jump at me at any point. And I will get as close as I can and look in its eye because somehow, someway, our lives have intersected in this moment. And it is beautiful. I also love squirrels. It feels weird as a grown man to say this out loud, but I love them. We have the perfect squirrel tree in our front yard, and there's this moment where, like, they're all fighting and chasing and falling in love, and it's just a beautiful, like, I can watch them forever do these things because they are just climbing up the tree at rapid rates, and it is something that I find deeply moving. I love my dog, even though we had to put her down. And we can all love the easy parts of picking her up and feeding her when things go right. And while I didn't enjoy it, I will tell you there are a few things that were as valuable as being with her when she breathed her last. And I can say that I loved that moment even if I didn't enjoy it. We apparently live in a community where it snows all the time now. I don't know how many of you did this maneuver where you put your head back and let the snow fall on your tongue. This is the substance of life, my friends. This is what I love. I don't know if you've ever walked into church and you heard a virtuoso saxophone played by Kahari Washington. It's free every time. How different is it when you look at it as a gift from Kahari with all the time he practices and plays, all that stuff? How different is it when you look at it as a gift as opposed to, well, I guess Kahari signed up for this Saturday. I went to the Bradbury building recently, and I just marveled at the fact that these used to all be drawings on someone's page, and they actually made it work. And I have to tell you, you know what else I love? I love when Rob Bell gives a sermon, and I kid you not, I took this picture of him talking about unicorn vans through tears in my eyes because it was one of the most beautiful things I've heard. And it's like, how does a guy get me to cry about unicorn vans? And Rob Bell has a way of doing that. I also love weddings. I, I'm not kidding. I absolutely love weddings. This was the most recent wedding I went to for Steve and Ashley Nielsen. And uh, it was just, we had the best time. We went with all our friends. We kept asking Steve, where are you staying tonight after your wedding? He kept saying, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. So we said, fine, we'll do it ourselves." We called the mission in. I said, can we be transferred to Steve Nielsen's room? And they said, yes. We said, we'll be right over. So we showed up. And Steve and Ashley walk in around, oh, I don't know, 9.45, and they see us. And boy, were they excited to see us, right? I'm 39 years old right now. I felt like I was 23 doing this. I stayed up past 9.30. It was great. I took a nap the next day because being 23 is exhausting. But this was the substance of life. And I'll tell you that if I can love weddings, it's a very different kind of love, but I feel like I can also love funerals. I know I love funerals because we went through a period where people died and we couldn't go to a funeral because of COVID-19, right? That was very difficult. But I love grieving with other people as we lament 
about how hard life can be sometimes. I will always have a deep reverence for that. There are many injustices on this planet, which is why I'm so inspired by people who make it their work to organize protests and to write bills and write laws and to do the right thing. I want to tell you, I think it's possible to love this struggle, to love this fight. I think it's possible to love the whole journey of making things right. Now, that doesn't mean it's always fun. That doesn't mean you're never discouraged. But you can love everything about the journey trying to make things better. And if not, it's okay to not fight for every cause you come across. Fight for the ones that you love, that you enjoy, and that you feel renewed when things get better. Someone may say, Craig, I'm pretty sure you've talked about your depression. How is it that you can talk about loving this world when you struggle with depression? And I would say, it's a weird experience, but this Wednesday, I could not stop crying. I was crying all day. I couldn't stop. I was just feeling depressed every hour of that day. Was it fun? No, not at all. But you know what happened that day? Pastor Kim Krogstad, who is retired, has taken me on as a project, and she's just the best. She met with me for our regularly scheduled monthly meeting, and she was able to hear the things that were causing me problems, that were bothering me, that was leading to my depression, and she heard it and received it, and I did not feel judged at all. It was a gift. Not only that, but my wife, who's just the best, she knew that I was having a hard day, and so she called one of our friends, and he brought coffee over to me during that day. The next day, I had a therapy appointment with my therapist who has given her life to getting this stuff right, and she helped me make sense of things that I could not make sense of on Wednesday. Do I love the whole process of depression? I'm working on it, but do I love the time with Kim and Kimmy and my therapist, Tracy? I do. I do. There's real beauty in those moments. I love my family. I'm trying to learn how to love all of them. No one that's pictured here. <laughs> it would be easy if all of our family members were lovable, right? They're not. So how do we learn to love all of our family members? I will tell you, I'm a work in progress. I'm trying to grow so that I can have a love for all of my family members. For some days, it's not easy. Not only that, but the ultimate level, the hardest one, is to have love for all of humanity, including your enemies. Am I there? No. Am I trying to get there? Yes. Will I make it there before I die? I don't know, but I know I'm going to try to love just a little bit more today than I did yesterday. This is what it means to live. And the question Christians need to ask is, how do you love this world? How is it that you love this world? How do you get involved and actually care about the ways of this world? And I hope that when you look at this community of church together, you would realize that we're all asking this question at the same time. So that way you don't have to feel alone when it's hard to love the world. My friends, the promise of John 3.16 is that God so loved the world, and if we follow God, we will love the world even more. God has made it possible for you to love this world. There is nothing in your life beyond the redemption of God. Nothing. There is nothing in your life that cannot be loved. May you follow God and fall in love with this world. May you see that so much so that you would give up what matters most to you for this world. May you see there is no difference between loving God and loving the world. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.
in all that you experience in this wonderful world. Amen. <laughs>